0: Welcome to Founder Radio. I'm your host, Hugo. In this podcast, you'll hear in-depth conversations with the globe's most exciting company founders. We'll talk about their ideas, their successes, their challenges, and their learnings along the way. At Founder Radio, we celebrate founders. and We believe that innovative founders are critical to deal with the challenges humans face. They are society's explorers and work in uncertainty to expand our practical knowledge And every day. Building something from scratch requires creativity, intelligence, conviction, and endurance. Get inspired and learn from those that are changing the world. All right, hello everyone, welcome to Founder Radio. Today is a very exciting episode. We have Michael Rautanen of Enderes really happy to talk to you. I've been super impressed with Michael and and the company that he and his co-founders have built. So excited to share more about uh, Indettas, more about Michael with you today. Michael, welcome. Thank Thank you, Hugo. Great to be here. Let me give you a a quick introduction. So Michael dialing in to us from Helsinki, Finland. He's the co-founder and CEO of Indettas for almost 15 years. We'll go into much more depth about Indettas, but very briefly in that is, is basically, it's a company that helps investors to understand companies. And on the other side, also helps companies tell their story, meet also their reporting obligations to the investing public. So it's really in the middle and make sure that that information is shared in a, in a very effective way, in a very actionable way, and is really revolutionizing the way this is done in the world from very old school banks to a much more modern version. I'm very pleased to to see what they're doing, hope this will spread across the globe. They've had tremendous success with Indaris. That's all the more impressive because they're largely self taught self-developed. I know Michael is very focused, incredibly down-to-earth, and very passionate about uh, everything Indaris and everything they've applied. So, very much looking forward to the conversation. To keep it very simple and also. Um, to give folks that are not familiar with equity research with this part of the world so to say a bit of an introduction Michael could you explain what Inderes does?
1: Yeah thanks Hugo I think you did quite well in, in, in explaining what we do but if we start with the big picture why we exist we're here to democratize information in the financial markets so we like to say that this has been an industry focused on serving the 1%, the top of the pyramid. And we're here to take it to serve 100%. Because when this industry goes from the closed ecosystem dominated by the banks into the digital work, digital world, you can, with the equal effort, you can serve the 100% and that way democratize investing and information for everyone. And how we do it is by connecting investors and publicly listed companies. So like you said, we operate as a platform between the two. We help investors better understand the companies that they invest in. We give them investment ideas and and information so that they can make better and more informed investment decisions. And then for the publicly listed companies, we are basically... An investor relations company for them. So through us, they can get everything they need to serve their owners in a very good way to help their owners and the investor community understand their equity story and how the company is forming. And the actual products where we make money is commissioned equity research, investor relations events, which means like capital markets days, quarterly events. Annual general meetings, we run annual general meetings for over half of the Finnish listed companies. And then investor relations software is the last part, which means for example investor relations website and press release distribution tools. And so it's kind of like an end-to-end package for the listed company. And that's where we make our revenue while for the investor side, people love it. We have over 70,000 active users only in Finland who, who are very engaged into the service that we have.
0: And you mentioned that you do investor relations events for over half of the Finnish listed companies. How long ago did you start doing that service?
1: So we started off with equity research and then expanded to the events business and AGMs and investor relations software later on to to diversify our product portfolio, always within the investor relations domain. So that's the buyer of our services. We went to that product area through acquisition in 2019. From there, we've gotten over half of the Finnish-listed companies onboarded to that product area. And then a year ago, we made an acquisition in that area in Sweden. So we're the market leader in that space in Sweden with over 200 listed companies running their quarterly events in Sweden through us. And altogether, all these product areas were serving around 400, over 400 listed companies in, in the Nordics at the moment. Wow. and. Uh, the magic with the investor relations events, where why we went there is that 10 years ago, when I worked as an analyst, I had exclusive access to the company management. When they had their quarterly event, it was in a closed cabinet in some hotel meeting room where I was the only one or me and a handful of portfolio management. We were able to access the management and get not insider information, but exclusive information and access to the company management. And what we did is that we brought in cameras to the conference room and started streaming those quarterly events for the whole world, which was back in the day revolutionizing. And those calls or streams were distributed via Inderes platform to tens of thousands of investors who suddenly had the same access as I did as an equity analyst to the meeting room. And that was really about democratizing information. And that's why it was a spot on acquisition from us to add this to our portfolio. It's a mainstream. I mean, investors, if a company organizes these exclusive events, investors get really mad, at least in Finland and and in Sweden, because investors demand equal treatment, equal access to information. And I think that's where the finance world is going.
0: Yeah, that's really a great development. And before I imagine they, a lot of the investors weren't even aware of these kinds of meetings, right? And that you could attend and vote, et cetera. For your audience, just to really explain how very concretely it works, maybe pick one company, could be any company, and then tell us what you would do in terms of investor relation work and how you would make that information public, transparent and easily understandable for the investors.
1: Let's say we did
0: Megacorp. They have quite a funny name. It's an
1: interesting Finnish crowd company in the IT sector. Mm-hmm. So, when they IPO'd, we helped them to set up the investor relations processes and capabilities, set up all the software that they needed. When they went public, we started, our analysts started coverage of their stock. So, that means that our analyst is responsible for communicating. For the investor community, critical third-party evaluation and research how the company is performing. The promise for the investors is that if the company is in our coverage, whatever important from an owner perspective happens in the company, we're there to comment for you. What does this mean for investors? What should you think about this as an owner or investor? So that's the research. Then when they host their quarterly events. The earnings call are processed by us when they have their AGM. We ran the whole AGM process from digital voting to whether it's a classic hybrid or virtual AGM. We ran the whole process and we ran the investor website, make sure it's always up to date and with fresh and up-to-date uh, content. So that's the full package which enables them to provide very good service and transparency for the investor community and their owners. And in addition to that, we have a very active discussion forum. So, for example, with this company, I think there are hundreds or thousands of messages. It's the owners and investors discussing with our analyst and with the CEO of the company. So on one platform... We bring in the dialogue between analyst, the company CEO or IR and the investor community, which result, and this is all open for everyone to access. Investors just love it. You can be a, a beginner retail investor and you go to our forum and ask the company CEO a question and, and the CEO comes and replies for you. That's just amazing because investors have not been used to getting this type of service.
0: Could you contrast that with how things were going before in theirs Like if you're a retail investor, could you talk to the CEO? Could you talk to an analyst? What would that look like before you guys opened this world up? It was from a company perspective, if you wanted to access
1: your target group for the investor relations, you would have to go through the large banks. And if, especially if you're a small cap company, the large banks are not interested in providing service for you because there's no business in it for them. So many of the small companies struggled with how can they get their voice out heard and how can they reach their target groups. And now, They can just plug into their ecosystem and have access to the relevant target groups for the investor relations. Then from a private investor perspective or retail investor, basically, you only had the financial medias, maybe some discussion forums, social media and so on. But you didn't have proper research accessible not to mention like access to company management. Well, of course, you could go to the AGM and ask questions. That's written in the law, but retail was pretty much kept in the dark. (laughs) Also, the public companies are waking up that actually the retail community has such a significant power and they can be a big asset and they are very important for many companies. Like we've seen in the history, the retail can move the share prices quite a bit if they want to. And they are also very important for the liquidity of publicly listed company. Because, I mean, if you're a listed company and there's no trading and liquidity on your share and investors don't understand you, then you're on the list only having the negative sides and the costs of being a public company, but you're not getting the benefits.
0: And could you explain the importance of the equity research you mentioned. And and for everyone, that's basically an analyst that will analyze a company, also typically give a recommendation on the, the value of the company. Why is that so important? And why is it so important for the functioning of the capital markets?
1: Equity research is very important part of the capital markets ecosystem, because yes, it's important that companies report for the investor community, but you need to have third party evaluation of the companies, which means the analyst work because analysts can also do critical analysis of the company and doing forecast for the future so that the investors, because Listed companies need to be really careful about what they can say about the future while the analyst can also they, they have the ability to evaluate different scenarios, how the business could perform in the future. So uh, analyst work is critical in helping the investor community to understand the equity story and business case of the listed company and how they should look at the valuation of the of the company as well. Interesting thing about Inderes is that we do commissioned research, which means that the listed company pays for us to cover them. And it's important that the analyst is also aware of the risk and it's critical and it can be also negative. We do, even though the listed company is, is our client, we do issue, reduce or sell recommendations on our paying clients, and we can be critical towards them in the analysis. That's because it's so important that the investor community can trust that the research is unbiased. If the investors don't trust the research, then it's useless for everyone. I'd say the companies and the investors understand this. I mean, when we entered this space and we basically turned around the whole business model of the industry, it was huge criticism against it. I mean, uh, people were almost like, this is criminal. You need to take these guys to jail. This, You can't do this. And then we were like, let's prove it works. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let's prove that it's worth, you will become a better investor if you read our research. And we can also be critical in our research. Uh, I'd say it took over five years to to convince the, the market ecosystem that this is the way to do it, but it was a tough battle in the in the early
0: days. Did you ever doubt the direction that you took because of all the criticism?
1: After the financial crisis, the equity research industry just collapsed because how equity research was done in banks for 100 years was that you're an equity analyst and you issue for your clients' recommendations and research notes, buy this, sell this, buy this, sell by sell, and so on. And then your clients would do trading and you make revenue on the trading commissions. Now that's a good business model if you have high trading commissions and you have high volumes of trading, but because of internet, <laughs> trading commissions have been decreasing all the time. And after financial crisis, especially in Finland, the, the volumes collapsed. So, so the business model broke down. Two-thirds of the equity analysts in Finland got fired. So there was huge decrease in the supply of research, but this demand was still out there. So investors needed research, companies needed research, and we were these young kids who had just found a company and we didn't even know what kind of business model we would build. And suddenly we started to get requests from the companies, how much we need to pay you to start covering us. And we were first, we were like, no, we're independent. Mm -hmm. That's in our name, Independent Equity Mm -hmm. Research Interest. We said, no, we're not going to take your money. <laughs> and also we saw that the investors really wanted to have research on, on also the small and mid-cap companies. And then we were like, we need to have some kind of business model around our company. So let's reconsider this one. And and, and that's actually, I usually say that it was the clients that invented our business model, not us. And that's where it all started
0: Could with, you, the, um, with the commissioned research. That was about the very early days of in so even before what you just told us like what made you start the company and what idea or what hypothesis did you start the company with
1: yeah i mean <laughs> with idea and
0: hypothesis we we didn't have
1: one in the beginning <laughs> so let's uh, say usually i mean we were just three guys very passionate about analyzing publicly listed companies and passionate about the stock market in general. And we were all free studying. So it was a side hustle. Mm -hmm. And this was 2009. So we had the financial crisis. We had the collapse of the equity research going on. And suddenly this gap in the market appeared that there was lack of research and investors needed it, listed companies needed it. And then we were like should we go to work in a bank investment bank or uh, to real work or will we try this one and well i'm happy that we <laughs> we choose this path.
0: Mm-hmm. when did you realize that this side hustle had the potential to grow into something big uh i think it was
1: like when we had over 10 publicly listed companies as clients that was quite a significant stamp that I'd say in 2011, back then I was 25 years old. I looked like a teenager back then, I still look very young. And I mean, 25 years old and you go to sell this new type of service and new type of way of doing research for the CEO of publicly listed companies. I still don't get it why they bought it, into it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's beautiful. It's like three young dogs having a yeah. good research for the, yeah, uh, the CEOs yeah. of Finland's companies.
1: Yeah. But for some reason, I guess it's something to do with like, we didn't fake it. We were truly passionate about what we do. And the first companies that bought into our service we're able to sense that, that these guys are really passionate about what they do and it's an interesting story. So they bought into the story and what we do more than the actual product. Did uh, you have any which, kind of course, training
0: at the time in equity research? Because it's quite a technical right. field, right? With different kinds of analysis, different kinds yeah. of models, a whole separate language, I'd almost say. Did you have yeah. any kind of training or any experience in doing equity research at the time? I'd say equity
1: research was our hobby. And of course, with the School of Economics, you learn the theories that you need to have. And then if you're an active investor, analyzing companies to support your own investments, like combining the theory and and your hobby, that's the uh, combination. So looking back, the research reports... I wrote like 12 years ago, I'd say they are pretty good still. <laughs> so, uh, yeah.
0: Please send me a couple. I'm keen to a look at, uh, at your work.
1: And... Yeah, yeah. And it was also like we gained huge amount of publicity back then because Nokia was collapsing because of iPhone and so on. And the whole Finland was focused on Nokia. And I used to be Mr. Nokia of Finland. So I was the first analyst that the media called when there was something happening in, in, in Nokia. And they called me because the banks didn't give comments for media. Ha, ha. So we were able to gain a huge amount of publicity thanks to the struggles of Nokia, uh,
0: which kind of like also made our name in the in- industry. Ha, got it. So a couple of uh, wins in the back, actually, at the time you started the company, there was Nokia... There was sort of the the financial crisis and the withdrawal of banks into equity research. Were there any other kinds of events or trends that really helped you grow?
1: Those are the main ones. And, And once we found the business model, commissioned research, I think it was also very important that we focused only on doing that. Like you have one product Back then you had like 100 potential clients in Finland, and you just focus on doing building up that one and resist the temptation to go into other ventures and, and so on. So that was really important. And then quite soon we realized that in order to be competitive in this business long-term, you need to start building access to the investor community And since we didn't have our own platform back then, we started to leverage social media in uh, 2014, 2015. And that was also very significant driver because in 2015, you could get huge amount of visibility on Facebook without paying anything as a company. Nowadays, you need to pay Mark Zuckerberg a a ton of money Mm -hmm. to get any visibility on the platform. But back then, if you made interesting content, the algorithms would just feed you. And we played the social media game to start building the investor community and engagement with the investors who then started to find our core service that we were also building, so our own digital platform started to use that more actively, create accounts and so on. So that was, I'd say, one significant growth factor because now we're coming to the network effect of our business model, we call it flywheel. The more you can get access to the investor community and the more the investors trust you, that feeds into the listed companies coming to your platform as customers, as main customers. And the more listed companies we have on the platform, the better service we can provide for the investor community. So cracking the code in building such a network effect to the business model was also very important. You find the product, you're disciplined and focused to build up that one. And you find the flywheel effect. And you keep working on both sides of the platform to, to keep up, to speed up the flywheel. And that was a very significant success driver
0: as well. Do you think you could replicate your success in, in Finland and in the Nordics in other countries? Because there's a certain path dependency when you're talking about a flywheel. Do you, do you think that's still feasible in 2023? The flywheel
1: we built was very local in the beginning. So Finnish listed companies, Finnish investors. But the uh, challenge with all Finnish growth companies is that this is a small country. It's less than 200 publicly listed companies. That's the market potential. So if you want to grow, you need to look outside Finland. And that's why two years ago we went public ourselves, we raised a bit of capital, and now we've started our journey in Sweden and Denmark. And we see that it makes sense to expand supply flywheel into next countries, because there's also a cross-border flywheel effect. There's significant befe- benefits in working close to the local community and locally being close to the local investor relations, but there's also cross-border network effects. Mm-hmm. And that's why that's kind of like the biggest challenge for Inderes. We're very early on in into our journey as, a, as an international company. Mm-hmm. I mean, we spent 12 years being only local company, and now we need to change our whole way of thinking into being an international company. And that's quite a big that's quite a dramatic change for the whole organization because, I mean, some startups are like born global. They think globally from day one. We have learned to think local, locally 12 years. So, so we need to change our whole thinking uh, to be successful. And that's where I see so many Finnish companies struggling when they are successful in Finland, but they struggle mm. outside Finland. Uh, I think that's the next
0: really big challenge for investors. How do you organize for that? Do you, for example, have local teams in the new countries you launched in, or do you take a different approach?
1: Local presence working very closely to the clients, so the investor relations of the company and, and local community team working closely in the social media and with the local investor community. But of course, then the product development and R&D, that's mainly based in,
0: in Finland. And how do you deal with that personally as a CEO of the company, you'll undoubtedly have less overview, you're less close to the operations in other countries. Is that a challenge for you personally? And how do you deal with that?
1: I've never had that big of a challenge in, in letting go and trusting people and the teams. So not struggling with that one, what I what I struggle with is that I need to change my way of thinking about this whole company and business, because like I said, I have learned 12 years to think this as a local business model, and now I need to shift my way of thinking and help others also to shift their way of thinking mm-hmm. to make the international growth happen successfully. That's what I said. But I personally, I love the challenge. Always when a Finnish company starts to expand outside Finland, people are like, the odds are against you. (laughs) And that's something that really gives me a a lot of energy. I mean... Always when you start a new business, I mean, the, the odds are always against you. That's the whole point of entrepreneurship. You start doing something that people think it's uh, almost impossible or at least uh, low chances of success. And then you're like, man, I, 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 I want to sure, do yeah. this. <laughs> you need these type of challenges because also like two years ago, we had become these kind of like rock stars in Finland. We had done our own IPO, a huge success. We had basically almost every listed company in Finland as our clients and the investors loved us. I mean, when you have that type of success, you easily fall into trap of we have reached it. Mm -hmm. And that's where a company easily falls into stagnation so so you need to have the next exciting big challenge
0: ahead and i'd say (laughs) we found it (laughs) challenge to uh, (laughs) stay grounded essentially Uh, do do you have other ways to you know stay very grounded and not you know be too satisfied with what you've already achieved for yourself
1: one important is that i I want to spend as much time as possible with the team. So we're 120 people. I many times want to keep my calendar open and flexible so that I have time to be present with the team, preferably without any agenda or topic, just being open and, and listening and discussing about life and work. Usually something interesting pops up when you just give time for people. Then, baking pizza is also one way to <laughs> Baking pizza? Yes, yes. <laughs> I have a pizza show. Uh, that's a side hustle also. A pizza show on YouTube. It's on Inderä's uh, YouTube channel. You're telling me now. Uh, yeah. Check it out. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's in Finnish only. The show has over 50,000 views and counting. Uh, I've made four episodes, so... Uh, I love pizza in a way that it brings people together. It creates positive feelings with people. I mean, everyone loves pizza. And this was some, I mean, like four years ago, I noticed that there's no, on YouTube, there was no good recipe in Finnish for Neapolitan pizza. So we we made one like that account mm. just to, I mean, just to try it out. <laughs> Nothing to do with investing. Mm. <laughs> and it was a good video it had a really good production quality and, and so on and for some reason it went viral and uh, i started to get photos from our clients and from random people like thanks for the recipe very good pizza and content related to pizza has become a kind of a side hustle <laughs> i love it you know <laughs> uh, in addition in, to uh, yeah yeah and the- and uh,
0: Michael, I'd love to, um, to change tech and talk about a topic. I know you're very passionate about as well, which is organization, organizational psychology. How do you align your organization with what you want to achieve and also put that into perspective of where you guys started. So could you maybe talk me through where you started as a three student team, essentially 15 years ago, what was your culture back then? And probably you didn't think about it that much at the time, but surely you know, there was a way of doing things and now running a company of 120 people, how did you evolve from that three person, student, side hustle to where you are now? And, and and what were your inspirations along the way?
1: Yeah, I mean, like when you grow from 3 person to like 10 plus the team is very self organized and and there's no bureaucracy and, and no hierarchy practically that's where all companies usually I'd say start from but then when you grow beyond 15 20 usually that's the point where you start to think a bit like how we need to organize how we lead this company and and we had that moment when we were like 15 people now we can't be just self-organizing. Uh, we need to be a real company. <laughs> I mean, now, Mikael, you need to be a real boss. You you are the CEO and the boss. And now we need to be real. And, and we tried that for a while. And uh, it didn't work. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't a good boss. <laughs> and our team, very talented, self-organizing People capable of making decisions themselves were not those type of people who want to be told what to do. Mm-hmm. So, uh, we threw that away. And back then, our chairman, Guy Hagros, who's the chairman today as well, introduced me to this book called Reinventing Organizations by Frederick Laloux, where It's about, it's called Teal, the organization model theory that's described in the book. It's about very much non hierarchical organization, shared leadership, evolutionary structures, high level of purpose and, and autonomy, and so on. And I started to study that theory. Then I also worked with a lot of companies in the IT sector who had used similar organisation models and had built their success around these organisation models and that's when i was like this might be something for us and that's when we started to build this like non-hierarchical co-leadership organisation model And uh, back then, people said, like, yeah, it's easy to be when you're such a small company, like 20 people, you can be non-hierarchical and so on. But wait until you grow, it will not work. And here we are today, 120 people, it's still working. And I'd say it's been a significant success driver also for this company that we have found an organization model and a leadership model that fits our leaders and fits our organization. It has not been an easy journey. You need to work on the model all the time to keep it relevant and update it as the company develops. But, but the core principles are still the same and unchanged. And what so are the core our, principles? It starts with our basic assumptions of our people, Free assumptions. So First one is that our people are trustworthy professionals capable of making important decisions. Second one, they take responsibility for those decisions. And the third one, they want to make decisions that are good for the company. If you trust in those three key principles, you don't need the hierarchy and the control mechanisms that so many traditional companies have. Mm. So it's very much based on trust that just gives so much freedom and also responsibility for people. It helps us to make decisions uh, in in a very fast and agile way. I mean, most of the people love it. They enjoy it. And then, of course, we also acknowledge that this is not for everyone. Some people want to work where they are told what to do, or they want to the work where they can tell other people what to do. If you're that type of person, then this is not your thing. But the model has also attracted very much the type of talent who enjoy working in this type of environment. Mm-hmm. And how it's, does it work in
0: like, could you give an example of maybe a project or a recurring part of work or maybe a decision making process that's very much driven by these principles and by this organizational design that's different from, let's say, traditional companies? Like, what does it look like?
1: Usually, when you say there's no hierarchy, people think that, well, then it's a democracy and, and everyone has one vote, but it doesn't work that way. So, how we make decisions is we call it advice process. So when you have a decision-making situation, you need to seek advice from all people meaningfully affected by that decision and who have expertise in the decision. And the advice process should be scaled according to the significance of the decision. So if you need to buy a new mouse for your laptop, probably you can go to the store and buy one, you don't need to ask anyone. If you need to buy uh, a new computer, a small investment, you probably seek advice from people who know, do we have a process around buying computers and and, and what type of computer would, would be good for my work and so on, and then you go on with the decision. And then if you have, let's say, last year we spent 8 million euros on acquisition, that's an advice process that scales up to the board work. So that's like, I'd say it was half a year advice process that we spend on on that. So, so it's a decision-making mechanism that scales with the magnitude of decision.
0: And Michael, how do you, because you mentioned the core three tenets, right? You, you said the people that work at Indaras are trustworthy professionals they'll take responsibility for their decisions and they'll take decisions that are optimizing for the good of the company and the well-being of the company how do you manage it when you find out that some of these standards do not hold so if it doesn't work as intended and and also equally if you see someone that's really excelling at making those decisions and is doing great like do you do something else in terms of consequence management, both if people don't meet your expectations, but also when they exceed them. Yeah.
1: I mean, companies who go into this type of organization model, from day one, you need to accept that the trust will be misused at some point. That will happen. For example, we're we're 120 people. It's inevitable that at some point, someone will misuse the trust that is given for them. And that is the critical point. Will you start putting in control mechanisms that treat 120 people as untrustworthy? Or will you take that specific situation on a separate track and solve it on a separate track? So I think that's one of the keys that if there are such events, we solve them on a separate track and we have separate mechanisms for resolving conflicts and uh, these type of situations. And that's what most of the organizations, they try this type of way, then they see that someone misuses the trust and then they pull back into hierarchical, very controlled uh, models. So uh, did you have
0: some other... Follow up on. on yes, on that. on that one. I can imagine, especially in your position or in other leadership positions in the company, I can imagine it's attractive at some point if you want to achieve something fast or you have a certain idea about how things should be done. You're actually in a position to then push stuff through, but that would immediately endanger the model that you're excited about and that works so well. Do you feel that tendency as well? Is it tough to sort of stick to these organizational principles or not really?
1: Yeah, so you mean, for example, I, as a CEO, have a strong vision, exactly. but the team doesn't buy into it. Exactly, exactly. Then I just need to go back to my drawing board and uh, either I convince the team with my vision, mm-hmm. <laughs> or then the team helps me to find a better route to, to that vision or so. But yeah, of course, it's, it's tempting. But then, of course, if you have a very strong idea, but your team is not buying into it, I can't force it because if I force it, it will not be a success if the team doesn't buy
0: into it. Yeah. makes sense. Yeah, makes sense. Cool. Yeah. That's super interesting and, and great to yeah. hear it works and that it's a real fit in terms of the people that work at as and, and what you're trying to achieve. On a personal note, how has this uh, journey been for you? You've been working on this business with the, the guys you started it with for almost 15 years. I can imagine the world looks completely different now from what it looked like when you started how uh, was that for you and how have you developed yourself
1: at the beginning i even didn't think about a career as as a ceo or a leader i was my focus was on equity research and i that was kind of like my passion and vision of want to be long term in my career doing something niche and being really good at it but for various reasons, and we three founders, of course, had the dialogue on who's going to run us because we were all passionate about research. Then it just started to feel more natural all the time for me to take on the leadership and CEO role and also start learning it, start learning and developing your leadership skills. And I was very privileged to work with I mean, the best leaders in Finland at the age of like 25. I was able to have a very good dialogue with CEOs of publicly listed companies. And from there, learn a lot of things about business models, strategy, leadership and so on. So that was actually a very good school for me to develop my own uh, leadership skills as well. So uh, I think that's been a growth journey both as an entrepreneur and as a leader and now nowadays i I couldn't imagine any any
0: other work than being a entrepreneur and a ceo when you look back what are the, the top things that you have learned through those dialogues through your experience that are super beneficial for you now
1: yeah i'd say one of the most important leadership skill that I've developed, I'd say is communication skills. And that was also helped by the equity research work because as an equity analyst, you need to be able to communicate very complex things in a simple and understandable way. I think leadership is, for me, very much about communications, both internally and externally. And I think that's one of the most important skills that i've developed and research has also helped me in developing that
0: skills as well got it and have you changed as a person because i can also imagine like equity research is almost monastic right it's very focused you it's probably you and your computer and the numbers and maybe a couple of calls and that's it in terms of your interaction and you have to really you know be, be creative it's very sort of a, a cerebral kind of activity i imagine now you're communicating all day long to all kinds of different stakeholders, team members, etc. Did that change you or, or not so much?
1: Yeah, I'd say, I, of course, I've grown and changed as a person quite a bit from the uh, founding of the company when I was very young, a bit rebel and <laughs> and reckless and, and, and so on. There's been different stages in this company's history. I mean, in the early years, you were driven by trying to survive, keep the company alive. Then when you find the business model, you are driven by making more money. But that doesn't take you that far. Then it was very much about like showing that, yeah, we can do it. We can build this into a successful business. And I'd say the longer I've been in this work, it's been more and more about building something that lasts time, like longevity is one of our values, building a company that would also flourish in the next 10, 20, 50, 100 years. How can you build such a company and organization that is able to thrive over time throughout different cycles of the economy and capital markets and so on, and contributing something positive for the community? around it. I think that's also something that is, the longer I've been in this work, the more that is driving me. And the fact that we get almost every week these uh, stories from like normal people who have benefited, they have through interest, they have been able to learn investing and that has enabled for them something meaningful and important in their lives. I think that's something that's very important for me that we contribute something positive to our own people and, and the community around us.
0: That must be incredibly
1: satisfying. Yeah. I mean, it, the, there's many times the temptation to take the decision that feels good short term, but this philosophy forces us to think, is this good for the long run? And if you can implement that type of thinking to the company and to the culture, one by one, you start building a more enduring business model. And I think that's been a that's been something we've been very successful in. I mean, usually people say that entrepreneurship is about taking risks, but I'd say it's more about taking calculated risks and mitigating risks. I mean, we have built our business model from day one around recurring business model around more diversified client portfolio more diversified product portfolio and now we're also building it more diversified geographically so everything we do is actually lowering the the risk level of our business model even though we are at the same time taking risk and investing but building such a business model that even if there are different crises and, and all kinds of crises will come, that's the fact of life, you are able to push through those, those different. Is that a
0: perspective? Um, yeah. You you yeah. taking your personal life as well? I'm thinking health, relationships, whatever it is. You, there you can also take a, a short-term and a long-term perspective, right? Has your focus on the long-term within the company maybe changed your perspective on other domains of life?
1: I've tried to build in a way that, for example, whatever happens, I mean, if Interest goes bankrupt tomorrow, I still have the things that are most meaningful and important for me in my life, like unchanged. Also, my personal life tried to build, and of course, well, finances is only a small part of that, but from that perspective as well. One event that has played a significant role in this. And also changed perspective into more long-term thinking for me as a person. And was that uh, I was diagnosed with cancer when I was thirty-three years old. I mean, that's something you don't expect uh, when you're th- thirty-three years old. Uh, and uh, and I think that's also one kind of like significant event. It's it's easiest to say that it changes your perspectives but once you go through that process uh it i think that's also played a big role in who i am what i want to do with life and and by the way i'm i'm healthy now i that was like Very a few small complicated, small complicated, operations yeah. and i was lucky 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 with that one
0: and how but did it uh, change your perspective like is one of the things from short term to long term Were there other changes in your perspective on your life because of that happening?
1: Back then when I was waiting for the
0: results,
1: I talked with my friend who had been fighting cancer for 30 years. 30 years fighting cancer. She said to me that whatever comes out, you're not going to stand still. You need to keep moving forward. She, she didn't say like the odds are on, on your side and, and things are going to go fine and blah, blah. She just said, whatever comes out, you're going to move forward. Then she continued that if you stop, I'm going to come and pull you up. <laughs> and, and, and I know from heart that she, she really meant it. <laughs> uh, like uh, she, Giving some, someone that type of support and standing next to someone, I mean, that's something so powerful. And I mean, fighting cancer for 30 years, that's... I mean, running a business is easy compared with that. Unexpected things in life some positive some negative they will happen that that's just a course of life and whatever unexpected things happen to you in your life like you need to keep moving forward and then if it's a close person to you and that person is facing someone like you can be the one saying that if you dare to try to give up i'm gonna come and pull you up that's been very important principle for me difficult and challenging things happen but you need to you, you can't stop gotta keep moving you need to keep keep moving life is great
0: <laughs> 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 that's, it. That's, it. that's great i agree thanks michael i really appreciate your openness and really appreciate that you sharing that in addition to everything you've already thought about thought us about in there it's really inspiring story I hope people will also check it out i wish you lots of success with the international rollout and i do think the world needs more in and less old school banks so i appreciate you, you working every day on that before we wrap up are there any parting thoughts anything you want to bring up or share with the audience well
1: i let's just say that today is a good day to start investing in
0: in, in stocks so. <laughs> I agree. Cool. Let's end it at that. Thanks again, Michael. Really appreciate it. And thanks everyone for listening. And see you next month.